Sophie. We clean Danny, Lily, and the wizard. No wizard. Why is he a wizard? Because he looks like a lizard. Who? Steve, he's so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know what episode number this is. We, Clint and I were just pondering this, but we are kicking off 2024 with a very special guest. Um, it's a bit daunting even trying to read out all your accomplishments, Lisa, but uh, I'll give it a crack. So starting off, a lot of people don't know this, but you're actually a bloody, well, obviously they would know, you're a handy bike rider, but you've actually five-time Swedish time trial champion. You've been the uh, cycling road champion. ITU world champion, is that correct as well? Sprint and Olympic distance. There you go. Uh, yeah. Top five in Kona, three times Olympian, Beijing, London, Rio. And then I think the race that anyone who's been in the sport for a while will remember was 2012 London Olympics where nobody knew who had won. You got just – you got a silver medal, but for my mind it looked like the closest thing to a tie I've ever seen. Um, and – yeah, and then you've, you're still dominating long course, 20 years of doing um, endurance sports, which I guess brings me to my first question. I, when you ran past me at Bustleton, I was there cheering you on and I thought, wow, like you are proper suffering on the run. And I, I was like, how do you have that level of motivation? Or, or like have you always been able to just dig really deep and absolutely hurt yourself? Or do you think it's something that you've trained and built up over time? And how the hell are you still doing it? <laughs> I think when I found this sport, uh, I connected like personally and emotionally to that kind of level of effort. And it really suited me. Uh, I came from horse riding, uh, from a lot of dressage and, you know, you get points and numbers and it's a lot of like show off. Uh, and to come into a sport where it's, all about effort it was it was amazing and from I think I did my first triathlon year 2000 and I raced my first uh, junior worlds 2003 so yeah 21 years this year um but I just love that like the amount of work you put down you get it out and it's more about how much you are willing to suffer and how hard you are willing to work on the way and if it was any other sport I probably would have quit like I would have you know, after the Olympics and I had some tough injury prone years and I never really got back into that short course level again, that would have been the end of it. But with the sport having so many different dimensions and um, like technical challenges, like that's really fascinating to me. Uh, there's so much more than just training. So you have that like suffering mode and the training mode. But then when you break it down, it's down to your running economy it's down to how you swim technically and you can do a lot of stuff to get better and faster that's not about the effort so mm -hmm. it's like the combination if it was all about like if it was only that effort every single time we're doing like four by fours on a stationary bike like that would have bored me but with that dimension of all the other bits it's interesting and 
I really enjoy trying to get better. Like I'm still getting better and I'm still learning and still improving. Um, and yes, there's some tough times, especially in the Ironman. And I think that's um, what made me get like a second win in my career coming to the Ironman. Part one was like the amount of learning that I had to do. And part two is that like I could really um, thrive in that suffering mode because at some stage, you're not going to feel brilliant. You're not going to look a million dollars and it's all coming down to how much you want it. Mm. And so I sort of, um, Clint actually told me this before the show, but when you started out, you were told you weren't going to be an elite because your swimming wasn't good enough, which I sort of went, oh, that's nice because I got told exactly the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so how, what, what, talk me through like those early years and was it just like a, were you instantly quite good at it once you, like, did it come quickly or did you have to work quite hard in the younger years to, to become competitive at ITU? I, I still have to work hard. <laughs> it's never <laughs> going to be easy. <laughs> I think if you're like, if you're born non swimmer or if you never like grew up swimming, you're always going to have to work for it. Yeah. Um, so when I started triathlon, triathlon was nothing in Sweden. We had nothing organized, no coaches, no. If I knocked on the door to a swim club, they would look at me like, you know, who are you? You're kind of old, but you can't swim. Like we have no room for you. So my salvation was uh, moving down to Australia after I finished school um, and got thrown into Spot Anderson's squad. Oh, yep. Um, yep. So I joined the Brat Club and Spot took me under his wing and he probably like had a bit of pity in his eyes and was like, okay, this bit fat girl who <laughs> clearly doesn't know anything about triathlon, but she seems to, you know, she wants to be here and I'm going to give the, a crack to learn how to swim. And I joined like all, so he had a lot of squads, he had a lot of swimming squads. And he was really good with teaching grown-ups how to swim. There was a lot of pool boys being thrown around on pool deck and abuse. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of had to like get your shit together. Um, but I spent, so I would like, I would show up to his session. I would do a bit of work for him. So I would take all the payments and write all the names down before the session. I would join into his stroke correction class. Then there was a second class coming, so I'd jump out, take all the names for the second class and the money, and then I'd jump back in to join that class. And then I would uh, swim my own swim squad in the evening, and I would turn up to Bondi in the morning for the open water swim, and I, just, I spent so much time in the water. Mm-hmm. And every single time, it was with Spot like watching over me and telling me I was doing shit wrong and how to do it better. And I think that really uh, progressed the amount like the time frame of getting into some kind of pack and I was shit in the start I was like far back and you know back at my time my first world cup uh, or Australian race was with Bob Lindquist and Loretta Harrop and all these girls who could really Mm. swim Um, so I was always a shit swimmer and then eventually a few years later I came down to Darren and again he was like pulling my stroke apart and I did loads of 25s and never got to swim any longer because I lost my technique so it's all about that balance with like always having someone on my shoulder watching over me uh, and then guiding me into and I had to like reinvent my stroke because first it was like can you make the back end of the second group and then okay can you make the back end of the first group can you how can you make your start quicker then you have to back yourself for 200 meters without getting on someone's feet and then I had to like evolve my technique with the level I was at. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I had to like retrain my stroke and how I'm swimming because I'm at a different stage every single year of my career. Like there's nothing that's the same. I can't copy paste. It's always like new things <laughs> coming up to like get better at 
whatever I need to do better, depending on how fast I'm swimming. I think a lot of people will very much relate to that in terms of the, your progression in swimming was very like relatively quick, but right. Like within three years you were racing like the junior world champs. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. But so- still I was in, I was in Beijing 2008 and probably two and a half minutes, something off the pace. Yep. Um, and I got into like the local paper, gave me a rubber duck for a Christmas present. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like, you don't have to swim better. <laughs> Jeez, they're tough. They um, do it tough in Sweden. Um, oh, they do. They do. So, so, so just before we move on from the Bondi stint, was that, how many, how long were you there for? And was it just purely, were you the only Swedish backpacker who was actually not drinking and partying and just training all the time? <laughs> so it was actually my mom, she's a midwife. And she wanted the last adventure before I was going to grow up and, you know, turn out to be old and boring and get three kids and start university and all this, you know, mm-hmm. chat you have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she moved down and I moved down with her and she worked there for three years. Okay. Uh, I was there for winters and then I moved back to Sweden for the Swedish domestic season came down again. So the Brat Club was for three years. Okay. 2003, four and five. And then I came back to the Gold Coast 2007 to join Darren's squad. And then I was with Darren for 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 in Australia. Um, yep. Had a break 13 and then went back into 14, 15 and 16 for the Rio Games. And so we the, spent, the uh, Swedish... I have so many winters in, in Australia. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I imagine. So the Swedish domestic season is what, two or three weeks long? And then come exactly. Back, come back to um, <laughs> so when, when, July you, and seven. when you when you trained with Darren, where were you based for that? And d- Darren ended up finishing up coaching, right? Do you stay in touch with him at all? Because he seemed like uh, he was a, an amazing coach, and uh, certainly in the time that he was coaching, he just had so many amazing performers. Exactly. Um, so I we started off in um, or at the Gold Coast, uh, Corumbin, uh, mm-hmm. Palm Beach. So he lived in Talabajara. Um, and I think at that time, so again, the sport changes and there's different um, dynamics in the sport and there's different demands. And what we needed to do, we needed to be better triathletes. And he was so good to prepare us for specific races. Um, and there was a lot of like the double threshold. You know, we, we did that back in 2007. We never measured anything. It was more... You know, <laughs> take the, the wind direction, and we had the the medium, medium plus, hard eyeballs out kind of scale, and not the lactate uh, uh, scale. Uh, but he did things very good, and like also at that time, no one of us women in the group were triathletes. We weren't born triathletes. We didn't start off as triathletes. We came from something else. So he upskilled us so well in all three sports. He made us better swimmers. He made us. Like we did so much technical workouts on the bike with uh, U-turns and cones and crit racing and same with the run. Like he was filming, he had this little film camera with an LCD screen you could pull out and you could you know, see a stroke <laughs> or see your running form and you could like have it in slow motion. And, you know, 2007, that was kind of high tech. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it like it really helped us and it made us and that group too was so good together and we were very competitive, but also non-competitive. So we trained really well. And I knew, like, if I could stay with Sarah True in the swim, you know, I was fine for the World Series. If mm-hmm. I can win our training race, I was probably, like, good to win the World Series. So we had yeah. such a high level in the group. I always knew where we were. And that was, you know, awesome, obviously. 
So from from getting the rubber duck after Beijing, how long did it take you before you're actually making like like swimming with Sarah or like I guess uh, London Olympics? Where did you come out of the water? Like, can I can I cut you off really quickly, Lisa? I think I first saw you. Um, at I think it might have been High V Triathlon, and that was where I first met Darren. And he was carrying all all your spare wheels or everyone's spare wheels. And I thought he was a bike mechanic, so <laughs> I went up and asked him a few questions about bikes. And he was like, "You think I'm a bike mechanic, don't you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "No, no, I'm a high performance coach." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> um, sorry." Back to Clint's question. Yeah. So, so uh, after after getting the rubber duck at Beijing and then realizing that if you got to that level of Sarah, um, you'd be super competitive. How how long, like what was the timeline before you actually like realized that that potential? Uh after Beijing, it was pretty quick. So I think already 2009 I was up there. Uh so 2009 I got second in the World Series after Emma Moffat. So we had it came down to the Gold Coast grand final uh between <laughs> us. But with the World Series, it's also part of getting your ranking up. So once you start to have like some really good races, you can choose your pontoon spot, right? So if you're top 10 in the world, you're going to stand next to Emma Moffat and Sarah True and like a lot of really good people. And it helps so much. Like it makes mm. such a big difference. So you kind of like wrapped into people who all wants to swim fast and they don't want to fight. And they are all swimming fast. So you get on the shoulder you have no fighting, you get to the cone, the first cone, which is super critical, you get there in the top 10, and then you can relax and you can just slot in and sit on feet. So my swimming was probably better than what I got out back in 2008, uh, but I needed the support of the field to have the really good swims. And then you get the confidence that like, well, actually I can swim front pack and everything just like adds up into being a, a better swimmer. I could still find myself exposed if I got into trouble, like you need to be a really good swimmer to swim out of trouble and then to catch up to the group that you lost, like then you need to be, you know, mm. really good swimmer. And I could never do that. Like I, I had to nail the start and I had to get myself in a good position to be safe. And I was always super nervous for the swim. Like I just needed to swim out of the way, get out of the water in a good position. And then I could like, okay, now the race is on. That's the first, like, just, you know, 20 minutes of worrying. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. My complete race in the first 20 minutes. It's funny you mentioned that. I always, when I ask pros, oh, who are you going to start next to? Because obviously in long course, you can start next to any, anyone you want. And so many of them are like, what? Who am I going to start next to? And I'm like, I've decided who I was going to start next to weeks before the race was even going to be on. <laughs> Just so because of exactly what you said is the people next to you can make or break your swim. So it was so important. And, and ironically, <laughs> the hardest swims I ever had were... I don't know if you remember, but the, or you would remember the non-drafting Olympic distance races in the US where they used to put the men and women starting together. And I was a pretty bad swimmer, especially then. And I would be with the sort of, I guess, floating back into the second pack of women. <laughs> and it was so rough. Like I was getting scratched and dunked and clawed. And I remember the, um, as soon as that stopped happening, I thought, actually thought the men were more gentlemanly, but I, I think the hardest thing was going from age, uh, sorry, the easiest thing was going from age group to pro racing because of what you said where the pros all understood, hang on, we don't want to drown each other and slow each other down. And and um, the, whereas age group racing was just, it was a free-for-all and everyone was just panicking and fighting for their life. So you'd end up slowing everybody else down and, and you'd get slowed down. But that's, I just find it so interesting that that 
you mentioned that and recognised that that was the difference between you being, a, you know, right up in the race or potentially not being up there. Well, you see someone like <clears throat> Ashley Gentle is a great example. So you put her in a, in a PTO race or a 70.3, and she's a really good swimmer. She swims like she comes out in, in front. But then in the WTS, she always struggled, right? Like she never really... Um, I think she was never confident enough in those big groups or you also have people that are very good to like to use the big groups. They might not be great pool swimmers, but mm. they're awesome at like sucking your feet and making their way through big packs and fighting a little bit. And like, you just need to have that. Like I always pictured a space, like a square around me. That's this is my square and you're not going to get into my square because yeah. once you start to allow people get close to you uh, and you kind of invite them, then you're going to be all swam over. Uh, so you need to have like, for me, it was like a, a mental headspace as well, getting into the WTS. It was like, this is war. And yep. the complicated things with swimming is that you need to be relaxed to swim fast, but you need to swim the fastest you ever swam and you need to do it relaxed. <laughs> and you need to do it like in a war position, in a war room, <laughs> not letting anyone get close to your feet or your arms or your head. <laughs> so it's like all contradicting each other and you've got to put it all together. Yeah, yep, very much, very much. So did you find when you went to 70.3 racing and then eventually Ironman, it was just like, did you find those swims a lot less frantic and you could really relax into those races? Uh, also, because the swim is less important. Uh, like if you lose someone by 30 seconds, I can bike back into the race, you know, within the first couple of kilometers. Yeah. So it wasn't such a big deal breaker anymore. I remember the first 7.3s I did back in 2013. I was actually bored uh, because the level was so bad at the time. <laughs> so I had one race in Syracuse where I think I I won it by 25 minutes. Um, and I was actually fourth. When I came into transition and we had started two minutes behind the men, I was fourth overall in the men's race as well. <laughs> and, and everyone was like, oh, my God, you're so amazing. You know, you're in the US. And I was like, no, actually, this is a shit race. <laughs> or the bike is like, uh, da, 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 da. And then I, I hit the wall so bad in the run and it was super hot and I had to walk a bit in a big hill and I came back and I was, I was disappointed. <laughs> and then I was like, this is not exciting. Like I came from the highest level of racing where, you know, if you're in the top 10, you're doing an awesome job. And here I'm winning a race by 25 minutes and it's boring. And <laughs> um, today it's a complete different story. And I yeah. found also that the level in the Ironman in the swim is so much higher than even when I started. And there's always like this one random person who swims really quick. And then you have another five or 10 of them who can swim solid. Yeah. So today, and also maybe my swim level has probably dropped off a little bit because I haven't worked on that top, top end speed anymore. Um, yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is the depth has come up across the board. Yeah. Um, and, but I still think there's those races out there occasionally where, um, yeah, you'd probably still find yourself in a similar position. Especially <laughs> at the at the bigger races. Um, we've said it a few times on here that I think that the ladies racing has become really dynamic and also mm -hmm. very competitive, like where they're pretty aggressive with their tactics and it's it's really good to watch. So I don't think you used to get that with the, like, you know, five or more years ago in the 70.3 type racing and even Ironman. And now it's like... You saw it this year in um, Hawaii. It was so good to just watch how dynamic the racing is. So, so um, I sorry. I've done nine Ironmans now, and uh, I came like my second Ironman 
No, my third Ironman was St. George, the World Championships. Mm. And then I done two Hawaii and I done both. So I feel like I have a handful of those super competitive Ironmans where it's almost like a mini World Series race, but you just go for like five times the length. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so in my world Ironman has always been like very competitive and pretty like up there <laughs> did um when when you went did you go into cycling specifically or did you did you just win those um Swedish titles as a bit of a hey I'm in a uh, there's a race on I'll go and do it and beat everyone else in my country or was that a specific I'm only cycling during that period of time and though for the, most of the time trials, that was just, uh, hey, let's go and see. Um, I don't think those girls are very strong and I could probably beat them. And it would be kind of fun to win a bike race. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up doing more bike racing when I was injured because I had some, I had a lot of injury years after Rio and also before Rio, to be honest. And at some stage, just get like tired of not being able to race. Like you, mm. you can never get to start line. And the run was always what stopped me, but I could always ride my bike. Mm. Um, and I raced, I raced a bit more and then I got second in the road race. And it was a hilly course with a big climb. And I think we had six laps, uh, 120Ks. And the girl who won it is a World Tour rider uh, who's been to a couple of Olympics. And then I got invited to do the women's World Tour race in Sweden with the national team. And then they invited me to go to Yorkshire um, for both the time trial and the road race. So it's kind of like just one thing led to another and it was interesting to explore. And this was 2019. So at yeah. the back of my head, I was like, maybe I can go to Tokyo. And this is uh -huh. also before COVID and, and everything. Yeah. Like maybe I could go to Tokyo for a different sport and that would be really cool. So I started to like do some research and, you know, what I would need to do if it was you know possible at all um but we had uh, the the really good girl that we had she had been injured with a concussion and raced very little which meant we only had one slot qualified for the road race for tokyo and the cycling qualification ended up in september 2019 that's when they stopped the qualification <laughs> so with one place for the road race it means that same rider has to do the time trial so I qualified, I was 14th in the time trial in Yorkshire. So I qualified Sweden a slot for the Tokyo Olympics. Um, but then to get that, it would mean I would have been the only rider at the Tokyo Olympics. Mm. If they had two slots in the, in the road race, I could have gone as an early domestique, then pulled out and then just done the, the time trial. Mm. But also in Sweden, they have that rule that you have to be a top eight level in the world to qualify. Okay. Uh, and for me to be top eight at a maybe European champs actually would have qualified in because cycling is so strong in Europe. Uh, but top eight in the world would meant like a lot of time in, in wind tunnels and purely mm. focusing on the time trial. And no one is going to pay me to do that. Like no. there's no fin financial solution to do that. You had to do it like out of your own pocket for, for fun and games. And I, I can't do that. Like I need to make a living as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of wind tunnels and... I guess we need to touch on that amazing bike split at Busso. Um, have you, has your power gotten better and better over the years or, or are you getting more, more testing, more aerodynamically um, fast? What's, what's the secret? <laughs> so I think obviously like you're, <clears throat> you put a lot of hours in the bank uh, and these hours are, you know, they're going to be banked every year and they're just going to grow. 
and the difficulties is like how do you keep teasing the body to get better like I need to change stuff I need to find new inputs to improve my cycling um, and it's always a give and take so what I'm taking away from is the top end like I had a time around 2019-20 where I had a massive top end where I could do a 40k time trial at 310 watts uh, I can't do that today or last year but I can do a, I did a four-hour TT on 232 watts back home uh, cruising yep. so mm. that like LT1 race pace like that has gotten so much stronger yeah uh, I probably have one of the cheapest bike positions ever <laughs> in the <laughs> pro field uh, I went to the wind tunnel um, I've been twice the first year I want to, because I was locked in with Scott for shoes and helmets and trim techs for the race suits. I couldn't change. The only thing I could change was my position. Uh, and the f- initial position I arrived with was what I left with. And the second year, <laughs> we tested two different ones. And I also been to Matt Bottrill beforehand, and he did some adjustments. Um, but like that's basically the work that I've done with the position and the rest has just been by feel um, and in the garage and like, you know, how do I want to sit and what do I want to do? Uh, we've done a lot of specific um, workouts to get strong in the position, to be able to hold it. Uh, and also like one legged workouts in the TT position, uh, a lot of short sprints in the TT position. So for a long ride, I would normally have a few 20 seconds all out in the TT trying to be as, fixed and still as possible while producing as much power as possible so a lot of those like bits around getting stuff together but also with a lot of obviously strength and and just endurance to to build that low threshold kind of base really strong what certainly works i I like i like that you went into the fact that you can't have it all with your training and racing so if you want to be really good at 40k time trial it doesn't necessarily you 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 need uh it's going to be a different training to if you want to be good at 180 kilometer time trial and i think there's this misconception out there that um i still think people can swap back and forth if they want to dedicate a year to one thing or six months or but um there's this misconception that hey if i raise my ftp i'm going to be a better ironman cyclist you know and um it just doesn't quite work that way the whole the whole training systems that you want to and how you approach it needs to be very different so we we used the lampreds submax test quite a yep. bit uh slightly modified but something that i can use from back home uh, so i ride at 60 percent heart rate 80 percent and 90 percent um and i don't see the watts i just look at my heart rate trying to keep it as steady as possible and then because it's so easy to do it back home. I have done it so many times. I can see the difference in the 68 and 90% of my heart rate. And basically I shifted the zones. So what previously was my zone two in the test was in June, my zone one. So you can just see everything is shift upwards. Yep. But I can shift like the middle zone, but still keep the, the top end is the same. Like that doesn't shift. Yep. Um, and what we traditionally done is we start with a VO2 in, in January. Uh, and I try to build the engine really early. And then as closer I get to the season, the more I go down. <laughs> so it's yeah. basically the opposite from what I did with Darren, mm-hmm. where we did a big base, moved into threshold, and then moved into race pace. So with the Ironman, we just like turn that around, uh, which is kind of fun in winter, actually, because we have 
Mm. As you can see, it's still dark and we had a <laughs> snowstorm yesterday. So to be in the garage and do view two workouts is like pretty easy. It's easier than five hour workouts on the bike. Um, but I think like if I would, we talked about it the other day, like I still would like to, you know, go back into the TT and try to do like a solid uh, national champs and see if I can win back the national jersey. But it's a 30K and I need to ride that like on a, I need, I need to like, be comfortable just above my threshold basically and mm. that's uh probably like a three month block of exactly. different workouts yeah. from what i would do yeah. for like getting ready for uh for an ironman series or something how yeah. often are you repeating that that test in training lisa uh so it depends a bit on the on the different phases but it's been almost every other week and okay. i do it as a warm-up um before any other session do you find heart, with that test, though, heart rate suppression, if you're in a big block, can give you a bit of a mis, misread? Because I used to do that test myself and I'd be in the middle of an Ironman block and my power would be getting super high for the heart rate. And then, I, But I'd fit my rate of perceived exertion was it was really hard and I realised, well, actually, I'm just really exhausted. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I, I did one. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty short. It was just before Kalmar, the Swedish Ironman, or after, and I had, like, my best reading ever. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like shit and I could barely like, you know, yeah. hold on for the last, uh, last step. Yeah. Um, but then we also have, do you do the 90 seconds where you just like rest and see your heart rate drop? No, but I, I would look at, I could always tell from my HRV and resting heart yeah. rate and that those things would tell me, it would all mash, mash together to tell me that it was, um, I wasn't fitter. I was just really yeah. tired. Yeah. yeah. But I think as long as you have enough tests, you can like, you exactly. make that judgment and you can like see why. And yeah. it's still interesting to see what happens and you understand your body a bit better and what's happening and where in the process you are at the moment. Yeah. Specifically, yeah. if you're doing that, like every other week, it's, um, it gives you just data every week to look at and compare to, and then you, you'd very quickly work out, um, yeah, where, where you're at. And, and I like that because it takes away that like, oh, geez, I'm going to do a test today and it's really important and people get freaked out and then yeah. you have one bad test and like, oh my God, it was not that, you know, what I expected. So if you just do it regularly, yeah, uh, yeah. you don't have to focus so much on the actual results and just see the, you know, the numbers add up over time. Well, that's I not, yeah, that's like not a, like an FTP test, a lot of people get very freaked out by the idea of having to just belt themselves in the middle of a training block or or week or whenever it is. But when you're just doing that, as as you said, part of your warm up, it's not so invasive and scary for people. And and, and you I can't think... really like impact it with your effort. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you have to stick on the heart rate zones. It's not like an FTP test. It's more like you need to be mentally ready to push yourself. But yep. here, like, <laughs> you're yep. stuck with the heart rates. And and that's partly why I don't, you know, I, I know some coaches are like, you got to do the full hour FTP test or it's not relevant. And and my, I, I did it once with one coach and I just vomited straight after it um, and had no motivation for three or four days afterwards. Like I can, when I go into something like that, I'm going to go really, really deep. I don't want my athletes to go that deep in a test. I would rather... They save that mental energy for when they're actually racing. So then after that, you know, I had subsequent coaches who were like, I want you to do an FTP test. And I was like, <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's actually amazing how many people have mental blocks for doing FTP tests. And you you, you get so much resistance from people where you say, hey, what about an F? No. And you say, no. okay, no worries. And it's like. And I'm I think not like the, 
the the, high, the more professional you are, the less motivated you are to put down like your max 20 minute effort in the garage. Yeah. Like why? What's the reason? You're not going to get earn any money from doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and if you're in a competitive environment, you know you're going to ride 50 watts higher anyway because you yeah. you're a racer and you're fresh and you're motivated to actually kill yourself, but a 20 minute test in the garage when you know yeah, there's nothing on the line. It's a lot. It's a lot harder to get motivated for. Mm, mm. Um, and I think a lot of these coaches are not racing every two, three months either, and so they <laughs> they don't understand the mental toll. <laughs> now I think sure. like so. Also, the years of racing, you need uh, you need to keep the head fresh. You need to stay motivated, and you can't like deplete that too much. Um, so like I, I'm kind of looking today at the. The kids, let me call them kids, who are racing so much. Like you have the Super League and you have the Olympics and you have the Ironman and like it's just like racing, racing, racing. And Darren was really good with us. It was like, no, stop. We're going to have to pull back and we're going to have to rebuild. And then we move out again and we're fresh and we have like new stuff with us. But it's not only for the body and for like the new cycle of racing, it's for the head. Like you just can't be at your best every single time of the year. Mm. At some stage, you need to pull back. And if you race too much, even, you know, if you got to do a local race, you put your race hat on and you're going to like have to wind yourself up and get ready. How many times a year can you do that? And can you do it like the second year and the third year or when is the stop or when you get bored or when you don't want to do it anymore? So I think if you want to have a long career, you need to like obviously take care of your body and do like all the bits with training, but you also need to take care of your head to keep that, you know, interested and still wanting to do the work and wanting to race. So on, on that note, what's like, what's your rest period yearly? Like, do you, I mean, obviously we spoke about it before we push record that your, the weather's pretty conducive to having uh, a, a fair few weeks of uh, easier training over there, but what's your, what's your typical like yearly off season? Uh, so I think like that's a, a good point being from Sweden you have that natural kind of long phase where you can't go out and ride for hours and you can't do a lot of work and there's no one around you that's doing that amount of work for me to go down to Perth before Western Australia I was like oh it's so easy to train because everyone is training and it's nice weather and just go outside um like before obviously I would be more into the the WTS series so we would race the, the grand final in September. And then there was a few of those non-draft races in the US into October. Then I take November off, uh, go down to Australia in December and then start winding it up. But pretty easy in the beginning, not like back all in, boom, back into work. Um, in the last couple of years with the Ironman, I started to extend the season. So the natural thing would be to shut it down after Kona uh, mid-October take a big break. Um, I normally take two weeks after a normal Ironman, even mid-season. And for a season break, I take like the two weeks plus another two weeks. And then I start to wind it up uh, after a month. Um, the last two years I raced uh, Cozumel and then Western Australia. And I also done that with Daytona before. And for me, it's just a way of getting rid of November. So I go home, I recover after the Ironman, the weather's shit, everyone else is working, there's nothing really fun to do, and I can go into the garage and I can just do another. I don't have to rebuild the world. I just need to yeah. like keep things ticking over from the previous race. Then I go to a sunny location, 
uh, have some nice days in November, December, and then I shut it down over Christmas, which also is very kind of nice back home. Uh, I go do a bit of cross-country skiing, do different stuff, and then in January I start, you know, my work here. So that that worked out really well for me, and I I get to do some fun stuff at the end of the season. Um, I have a Christmas back home with skiing, and then it's back to work. Perfect. Makes perfect pe- sense. Pe- people should take note of that, especially. I think it's very hard as an Australian or an Australian racing in Europe and or the US, and then coming back to Australia. I think a lot of us um, would, would do half our seasons extremely burnt out and not not really acknowledging it or getting greedy and wanting to race eleven months of the year, sort of thing. So I but know it's I was... tricky for you guys because your season is uh, my normal off season is your season. Yeah. And it's like for, for most athletes, the domestic season is, you know, the first important part because you have local sponsors, price money, you don't have to travel so much yeah. uh, to go over and do the European season would be tougher for you guys because it's more expensive, um, it's more travel um, and you can't race the full year. Like it's not possible. So, like, and that's the, it's very hard for the pro guys if they're chasing or women who are chasing the Ironman um series and then you go to you do october hawaii and then come back to australia and you've got sunlight from 5 30 a.m until eight o'clock at night and you've got this off season the weather's beautiful you know it's very easy to just get to trick yourself into going to train like uh, you see people out just going for their ride and the weather's so nice that all of a sudden that's a five-hour ride in your off season well that's just not conducive to Mm. rest recover and go again I also find it's like it's so nice to like cross-country skiing I'm, I'm born in the south of Sweden we never had any snow so I'm, I'm not a great skier um but it's a different input for my body like I yeah. could swim bike and run in my sleep <laughs> not, yeah. you know and my heart rate would be kind of low because I'm so efficient at it but to do something different we have to like work with how you move and your heart rate is going to be high because your body's not used to the movement so I can go and ski an easy hour and still have 150 heart rate. So you weren't, you, you didn't ski when you were younger, like you've kind of just no, picked it up. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you find that that's been really beneficial for your triathlon training? To have I a- think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, one part is the, um, um, the actual work, like the heart rate zones that I could yeah. easily do without pushing so hard. Uh, and I think it's also the older you get, you have to keep working on your body. You have to keep working in you know, a coordination, your balance, your like to put it all together and to learn a new skill. There's a lot of uh, things involved with that, that you have to concentrate and you have to like feel the m- movement pattern and, and how to put it together. And I think it's it's very useful for the brain and for the connections to to get that kind of stimuli. For sure. So Lisa, this year, the, I'm assuming the main focus is... France uh, in Nice, or is have you got other targets? Um, yeah, what are you? What's the one thing you'd love to do before? Um, I mean, you've probably got years left, but before finishing, is there a number one goal that you're chasing? Uh, like, it's a fun, fun time to be a part of triathlon because there's so much happening at the moment, uh, and I think a lot of athletes have a lot of dilemma with you know what path to choose and what to do. Um, Obviously, the PTO tour, it's going to be so interesting when we find out who's going to be where, right? Because no one really knows at the moment. I would love to um, to race on the contract because I've never done that in my career. 
to have that financial security. Um, you're going to raise those races. We're going to pay you for it. Boom. You don't have to worry about anything else. Uh, so, so if I get that opportunity, I would love to take it. Um, but Nice, obviously, like being more of a bike rider, Nice is very tempting, right? Mm. Um, there's a lot of climbing. Maybe, so I'm, I'm still quite a big girl in the pack. Like I'm a, you know, tall and you have someone like Annie Haug, you can probably like fly up these hills on, on no watts. Uh, so I have a bit of work to do to be competitive on the big climbs. Uh, but I think watching the men's race, it's kind of like a strong bike rider who comes out on top. And how the field is more falling into bits during the race is something that interests me quite a bit, especially after Kona this year, where we had this massive pack and it's so hard to break it up. So mm. this obviously is something that I would, you know, be very, very uh, keen to do well and focus on. There's so much race, like as you said, like it's an exciting time to be part of triathlon. But one thing that I can't work out is say with the Ironman series, how you can structure that as a professional athlete to just race back to back to back to back Ironmans. It's, um, I've looked at the the scheduling of it and it, it baffles me that people can kind of be competitive over and over and over. So to, as you said, to have the, the security of here's your contract, these are the races you're doing. That's all you've got to worry about. That would be a really awesome option. I think you can probably do it at once, Diamond Series, but I wouldn't want to do it like year after year after year. Yeah. Someone like Joe Skipper, you know, he's going to be amazing yeah. at it because <laughs> that's basically what he does in the normal season. Yeah. Uh, I raced four Ironmans this year, um, with Western Australia being the last, and I was you know, a little bit unsure if it was too much or if it was enough. Um, and then I had raced Roth and Kalmar before Kona. So I kind of tried on the theme a little bit yeah. uh, nice is earlier this year than kona um kalmar was in august and obviously kona in october, october. and now so nice was that is in nine, September. nine to ten weeks before uh, from kalmar to uh kona uh, eight, 18th of august or 19th till 14th of october yeah so eight ish yeah. weeks yeah and, and then you raced again in wa well that makes the wa race even more impressive <laughs> but that was like you know you don't you don't know what you have left right uh, you just yeah. gonna have to go down and see what happens i think um else she had done her fifth in wa and yeah. finella was also on her fourth yeah. Uh, yeah but i think like if you keep racing like that like i remember western australia was definitely the longest recovery for me out of the races last year it yeah. took me four weeks before my hrv was back to normal wow and four weeks wow. is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this, that's a cost. Like there's always a cost. You can, you can, you can do it, um, but at some stage you're going to have to pay for it. Uh, and that's what I meant too with the recovery. Like you can do something for a long time, but then the bill comes at some point. So you can either do two Ironmans a year and you don't pay so much every year. Like you recover quicker, you get ready for next year and then you race well. Or you can maybe like dig deep, dig, dig a bit too much and the recovery is going to be slower and slower. You're not going to bounce back and then you're going to have a few bad races probably. Yeah. Um, so that's my worry too about the Ironman races. I, I think like I'm probably quite well suited for it because I'm recovering well and I seem to be quite consistent around the top five, top six. <laughs> that's where I've been like on most uh, on St. George and Hawaii. And um, I think we lose a lot of the top girls too to the PTO series. So the Ironman could definitely be interesting in that way. 
and you probably have to raise the slightly different than knowing that you have so many races to do so you it's the same for everyone right everyone well, knows you have to raise that many races and then also obviously your prep would have to be you, you can't just keep like you, you'd it'd be like what you did for WA where you, you're not rebuilding every time you're basically getting to fitness and then almost staying close to yeah. race fitness for an extended period but also being confident in 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 the training you've done and following things like your HRV where you let yourself recover knowing that you you have to to, to perform well down the track mm. yeah uh we had a few fan questions but uh, we actually have, have covered a fair few of them along the way um one of them was have you dealt with any serious injuries in the past and or have you had any very serious injuries in the past and okay we need to add two hours to the (laughs) (laughs) and maybe maybe just list what's your what's been the worst most frustrating injury you've had um yeah give us that one because i I know you've had a lot like (laughs) my worst most frustrating injuries is the ones that have been like like an injury spiral, you get one and then you come back and then you get another one and then you get another one. So it can be something like a torn calf and then you have a sore foot and then you have another tendon and then you've got a sore back because you're just offloading everything, trying to get back into fitness again. Um, And for me, that was also a bit of an energy balance problem and um, hormone balance where like, I pushed so hard before 2012 um, and I was very, very light because back then you didn't talk about recovery. You didn't talk <laughs> about HRV. You didn't talk about sleep quality or about fueling. You talked about just getting skinny and running fast. And that's what we did. And we had the calipers and the skin folds and everything to help us getting very skinny. Um, and I paid the price. It you know, cost me four years of my career. Uh, But the longest one, the most annoying one, was my Achilles. Um, And that cost me a year and a half. Uh, And I eventually had to do an operation to remove two bursas, a bit of heel bone, and the plantaris tendon. So that was probably the most serious one. Yeah. There'll be a few people that can relate to that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Simple one, PTO or Ironman in 2024? We've already sort of hit that. Oh, you mean well, what's the, so, that? They just want to know what what you'll be chasing. Uh, I'm twentieth on the world ranking, which means I don't have an invitation, uh, and they haven't announced anything else. Uh, if there's a roll down, I don't think it is because I haven't uh, had any you know requests if I want to race. So my hope then is if I can get a wild card, which I don't know if still on the cards because you see Lionel probably has gotten a wild card and said no thank you because he's going to race Ironman and no one knows what the process is like at the moment so and they haven't announced any races either so we don't know where the races are or who's going to race uh so so far it looks like the Ironman series for me what else we got Clint um, we'll do we'll do one more and then Lisa we really should let you go but because we <laughs> that's about it we we did we we discussed the ironman bike split um do you think well I, a good question there is do you think that you can lower you can lower that time and also do you think you can lower your run split off that th- that hard bike oh i i think i can lower the time um because it definitely wasn't like the best possible um conditions to ride fast there's a lot of people on the course um there's a lot of U-turns and 
like a lot of the U-turns had a lot of traffic. So the traffic was a big problem. Um, I think to run faster, like, so what, it was pretty warm and my core temperature at the second half of the bike was too high for what I would have needed to run well. So when I ran, I just got too hot. So the question is if I could ride at the same level, like I probably, to do it really well, I would have to cool it down on the second half of the bike. But the second half of the bike was, that made my bike fit, bike split very fast. So I needed that like effort to get that bike split. And that cost me on the run. So give me a, a cooler run or a colder climate on the bike. And then I could probably hold it together more on the run. Uh, but the heat was a big factor for me. And maybe then like, you know, not enough time in the heat. Um, I came from Sweden. I did some heat acclimatization back home, but you know, there's only so much you can do to get ready for an Ironman in the heat. Yeah. Okay. So the, the answer in a word is yes, you can go faster. Uh, yeah, yeah. But so if, if the question is, if you, if I could have gone faster in Ironman Western Australia with them heat conditions, I don't think I could have, okay. I think I still could have ridden faster. Uh, but I couldn't have run faster because the cost would have been too high. Okay. So, Lisa, it turns out um, I totally stuffed up and sent Liz the wrong time, and that's why Liz has just popped on. Just <laughs> oh, popped on lovely. There. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this was the original time, right? Yeah, this was the original time. So I, I thought, um, what did I say in the in the message? This is because I think you suggested two times, and I just was anyway. I. It's probably totally my fault. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry, Liz. Thank you very much, Lisa. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been um, very informative. So thanks very much. And uh, Reid, any any apologies you want to throw? I've, out I've said it. I'm really sorry, Liz. <laughs> well, I look forward to listening along and finding out more about you, Lisa. <laughs> we can talk later, maybe, Liz. Just me. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate Super. it. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good good night down there. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.